to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hello and welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director of InnovationOz.com. Very excited today to have Frederick Kerrist on our show. Frederick Kerrist is the Executive Chairman co-founder of Okta, the identity cloud company. Welcome, Frederick. Thanks a lot, James. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. All right. We've got a lot of stuff to get through. We've just been talking uh, through some of the subject matter, and there is a lot. I just wanted to preface this, though. You uh, founded Okta 11 years ago, so 2009, just following, I think the US was still in recession. It was a difficult time post-GFC. You're a Salesforce alumni, if I can call it that, and you also, way back when, worked for one of my favorite companies at the time was Sun Microsystems. So that's your background. To start with, I wanted to ask you about the origin stories of Okta. How did it come to be at a time when starting a company might not have been seen as a smart move by sensible people? Yes, sure, I'm, I'm a sensible people. Yes, I'm happy to talk about that. Let's see. So as you mentioned, we're in the 11th year of business now. We started the company in 2009. As you said, it was certainly an economically challenging time in the world and in the United States. And we're a California, United States-based company. So that impacted things. I have a co-founder. You can't see us on video. He's slightly taller, but not as good looking as I am because we all have our things. And the two of us met uh, prior to founding Okta, as you said, at salesforce.com. So we're both Enterprise software people were both entrepreneurial in spirit and nature. And I started at Salesforce in 2002 when there was about 100 people. He started the year after. Todd was in charge of all engineering. He ran all product and all platform. And I built a bunch of businesses at Salesforce over the five years we were there together. And you know, we had a front row seat to a transformation in technology that was happening. And we drank a lot of Kool-Aid. We saw people going from the client-server world to a software-as-a-service, or what we now call enterprise cloud world. And we talked to a lot of our customers, and they said, you know, this software-as-a-service stuff is great. We love Salesforce. We want to buy more of these applications. But we're running into basic problems. How do we manage the users? How do we manage the systems? Uh, Users have uh, username password problems, same problems you and I still have at home today. But this is happening in the enterprise. Someone leaves. We don't cut them off from these publicly available services. Like, how's this all going to work? And so Todd and I took a step back and we said, hey, you know what? This looks like a great opportunity. We think that Enterprise Cloud is, is a much better way of delivering many enterprise services to most companies. ROI, TCO, time to value, all these things are much better. But for it to really take place, for it to really happen, someone's going to have to create this amazing integration layer to connect all the legacy on-premise infrastructure with all the modern cloud stuff. And we thought that identity would be a big piece of that. And so we took a big bet on it. That's how we started the company. It was two of us today. You know, things have gone well. We're fortunate. Certainly, it was a challenging time. But in those economic downturns and in those times of, of a lot of dislocation, those are actually great opportunities. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the dot-com bust of the 2000-2001 time, you had great companies come out like Google. At our time, you had a whole generation of new startups come out 2008, 2009, 2010. I expect the same thing's going to happen now. I think a lot of the ways that we did business or have done business or as consumers have experienced the world are going to change significantly in the coming years. And I think you're going to see a lot of innovation. I spent some of my time on the side helping enterprise software entrepreneurs build their companies, kind of trying to pay it back because we got a lot of help from entrepreneurs ahead of us and trying to do the same thing. 
And I see more and more innovation happening every day. I think it's going to be a very exciting time in, in the years ahead. So. Yeah, I guess I should have mentioned also, so 2009 set up, I looked at your market cap this morning, I think it's $25.5 billion. I suppose that moves around a little bit, but obviously an enormous success. more than it was in 2009. That's right. It's more than it was in 2009. That's right. So I'm wondering, I'm not wondering, I would have thought that identifying identity as a key to SaaS was, well, it is completely non-controversial now and I guess a little bit obvious. Even then, was there any pushback here or you just dived in and uh, didn't worry about that? Oh yeah, people thought we were absolutely crazy. So first of all, identity management itself, historically it's been around for 30 years, but I mean, it is pockmarked as a terrible industry where identity management vendors uh, typically for the 25 years before we started did a terrible job of making customers successful. They would sell them a bunch of software, say good luck with all these integrations and we'll be back for a, a maintenance bill in 18 or 24 months. And many people took me and Todd aside as we were starting and said, hey, we don't think you should do identity. We said, well, why not? And they said, well, you, you're both good people and you have good reputations and you're about to sully them by going into this industry that is a disaster. And so obviously as an entrepreneur, that's like catnip. So you're like, oh, okay, great. Well, that sounds awesome. So let's go do this. So not only that, but security, take a step back and think about what identity is as a security platform, putting security in the, in the cloud in 2009. I mean, that, that, was, that was absolutely crazy. So I think that you have to take a big leap of faith. You have to be able to take a bet on where the future is going to be. You have to play this careful balance of painting this big vision, but also like, you know, as soon as you raise money, you have to start generating product and selling customers. And so you have to sell them on what you have today, but pitch them on what the big vision is. And, and if you do that enough along the way, you start to build a business. So I guess now, if you look at the landscape globally, but any in any modern economy, you've got Cyber is still a massive issue. Identity is still a massive issue. And probably more so since the onset of the pandemic and everyone's working from home and all that stuff. So it's still a, maybe it's not a greenfields opportunity, but it's still a massive, massive opportunity. There's so much to be done. Yeah, without a doubt. And that is very exciting for us. We've been a public company now for 13 quarters. Not that I'm counting, but if I was, it would be 13 quarters. And we had our annual investor day in April, just this past April. And we talked a little bit about how the markets had grown, the markets that we're in. We're in two markets. We're in a workforce identity management, which is identity management for your employees, your contractors, your consultants, helping them just use these new technologies that are out there. And then we're in a second market called customer identity management, which is helping, you know, digital transformation, the most overused term in the world, but basically just helping people create better interfaces for their customers, their partners, their vendors, their suppliers. Um, mobile apps, web interfaces, things like that. And we estimate that there's north of $50 billion that's going to be spent this year alone on both of these industries. And these numbers are growing big. So if you rewind 12 years and I met you in 2009 and you told me, Frederick, nice to see you. And I said, James, great to see you. And you say, hey, in 11 years, your company's going to have 2,700 employees and 9,000 customers and $800 million of revenue and be public and worth, you know, whatever, tens of billions of dollars. I would have said, first of all, you're crazy. Second of all, you know, where can I sign up? But now that I'm here, and the last three years have been great as a public company, now that I'm here, I think the next three, five, 10 years are going to be way more exciting and interesting in enterprise identity. And we can, talk, we can talk about why. And so now it feels like it's a nice little quaint small business compared to what it could be. So I absolutely agree. I think that the future pretends very well for identity in general. Yeah, okay. So just sticking on identity, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions that may uh, come across as political. Oh, they certainly are political. I don't want to get kind of hijack the conversation along that road. But it's an election year in the US. There's a Democratic convention going on right now. 
And when we talk about identity and then we talk about elections, it seems a massive disconnect between what is possible. I'm not suggesting Okta run the US elections, but I'm suggesting surely there is a way to manage elections in a better way. Yeah, the answer is absolutely. We have spent a lot of time. We're going to be spending a lot more time in the years ahead around voting, right? Today, we are just getting, trying to get mail by voting officially sanctioned throughout the United States. There's still eight states, including New York State, that do not allow mail-in voting alone for this upcoming election. New York State, by the way, is the third most populous state in America. And if it were a standalone economy, it would be the 10th biggest economy in the world. And you cannot vote by mail-in, much less digitally. So this is a big problem. I think that e-voting is something that has to happen. I think we have the first starts of what could portend well for the future. We have a very good government business. We work with a lot of state, local, federal government agencies, not only in North America, actually in Australia, in the UK, in Western Europe, throughout the world. But we work with some of the big divisions of the federal government. We work with some of the state and local divisions, not only for their internal employees, but also customer facing. So basically, you and I as residents, how we interact with our government, how we can do that digitally. That is something where we have a business. It's growing very nicely. But to get from here to e-voting is something I think we absolutely have to do. It's a very complicated topic, but it's something we have to make steps on. And we have to make progress because there is a lot of barriers to democratic voting in the United States. And we have to make it easier. Some, plenty of those are political, as you mentioned. They're not really about technology. They're about attitude and approach. And the number one thing I would say for everyone, at least everyone in America who's listening to this podcast is please go vote, right, in any way that you can. But I actually often use, James, you might be surprised to to hear this. I often use Australia as a great example because if I'm not mistaken, if you are an Australian citizen and you do not vote, you get fined. We do. No, and that, that is like the model. Because remember, the rest of the world is trying to get this kind of democracy. So the fact that we have this kind of democracy and we don't make people go vote, people don't take advantage of this. I mean, it's it's crazy. I use the Australian model all the time as a great example. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, mostly when I talk to Americans and they find out voting's compulsory, their hair lights on fire and they run around going, you can't make these things compulsory. But no, I think it, uh, it allows broad representation. Politicians have to look after all the underclass. So everyone has a vote. But yeah. yes, you do get fined. Yeah. Is it like $50? I, I think it's $100. They're not perfect at catching everyone. But I bet that if you find everyone $100 in the United States, if they did not vote, you would get much better turnout than you do today. To be honest, I'm not sure what the voter turnout is in Australia. It would obviously be higher than US, but uh, still significant numbers. And also, sorry, it's not compulsory voting. You can just donkey vote. You just have to turn up and have your name passed off the roll. You can tear your thing up if you want. I'm Um, fine with that. uh, I I am totally fine with that. If someone wants to show up and abstain, they can do that. But at least they participated in the democratic process. No, that's exactly right. Now, another thing I didn't mention, I'm talking to Frederick Karras, the co-founder of Okta. The other thing I didn't mention was your Zero to IPO podcast. Now, Mm -hmm. you're talking to founders consistently, and you're talking in a variety of roles, but on the podcast, you're talking very much around startup issues. Since the start of the pandemic, as you've made your rounds, you know, what are the common threads that you draw across uh, the way people are looking at the world right now? Yeah, as you mentioned, I do have a podcast called Zero IPO, as opposed to you who are a professional at this. I'm an accidental amateur podcaster. We got a lot of help from entrepreneurs who were ahead of us on the journey as we were building Okta and folks like Brian Halligan and Darmesh Shah, who founded HubSpot, and Neil Bushri from Workday, who was on our board for a long time. 
who just kind of helped us navigate and think about how you could build a, a large, successful, independent, profitable software company. And so I thought it was the right thing to do to help uh, the entrepreneurial generation behind us do the same thing. And what I found, obviously, you know, software is, is eating the world, which was kind of controversial when, when Mark Andreessen penned it in 2011. I think it's maybe a little more accepted today, which means I see a lot of technology founders who show up and say, hey, I've done a million or $2 million in founder-led sales. You know, how do I build a sales team? How do I build GNA? And so I found myself answering the same questions over and over. Then I started penning some articles and then folks said, hey, can you just record some of these things? And I said, that's great, but I'm not as, as amazing on the podcast circuit as you are, James. So not everyone wants to listen to just me. They want to listen to others as well. So I uh, brought in some of the other successful entrepreneurs that I knew. And we talked about how hard it is to build a company so that it's not a lonely thing when you're out there and you can't close a customer and you can't raise the next round of financing and you can't convince the employee to leave his cushy job at Google to come and join you. We have great entrepreneurs like Melanie Perkins from Canva, who was actually on the show as well, talk about the challenges that they faced. And so as a result, the whole goal of the podcast is to help every entrepreneur who's out there who might think, man, this is hard and I'm all by myself, just realize like it's hard for everyone all the time. So that was the goal of it. As I talk to more and more entrepreneurs these days, you hear, you know, there was, we were obviously in a, in a bull market, certainly for startup uh, financing over the last number of years. You had rounds of financing that were done at bigger and bigger valuations. You have some unfortunately very well-known and well-told stories of startups that went in the wrong direction where, you know, founders maybe got too aggressive or were looking to raise too much capital. I think what's really important these days is having an anti-fragile mindset. And what I mean by that is, look, you still have to raise capital. Your number one job as the CEO of a founder of a startup is to not run out of cash, just to be very clear. But you also have to think about more concretely, what are the problems I'm solving? How can I make sure what I'm doing is actually a pain medication versus a vitamin? Vitamin is something that's like a nice to have and then an up market might get funded. Today, things are really pain medication. That's what's getting funded. What's the problem? How can I solve it? How can I help people today? How can I get close to customers? And I think that when you talk to folks who have that approach, who are very carefully watching every nickel and dime that they spend, I think you're seeing a lot of great innovation happen. And, and I think it's going to be very exciting time ahead. So Ben Horowitz is your chair. Is that chairman of the board? He is the independent chairman of the board. He was our first board member in February of 2010. So he just passed a decade on our board and is still on the board. So we did something okay. Oh, that's amazing. And he obviously wrote one of the great books on startups and business generally. I, I gave that to my wife to read. My wife runs all the commercials for our business and it made her cry. Because Which one? Ben's actually written two good books. Which yeah, one? The one I'm talking about is Hard Thing About Hard Things. Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yeah, absolutely. That was terrific. Okay, so when, when you're talking to these startup founders and particularly talking now in this accelerated phase, there will be companies that we haven't heard about. There will be companies that create categories. Where do you think those categories will be? If you're putting on your, you know, looking into the crystal ball, what's looking very good right now? I mean, I think it's going to be very broad and wide. I mean, obviously, I spent a lot of my time as an enterprise software entrepreneur. That's what I spend a lot of focus on. So, I see a lot of great enterprise software companies, whether it's security, whether it's privacy, whether it's digital enablement, whether it's a modern set of work tools, whether it's based on what's just happened over the last six months with the unfortunate COVID-19 global pandemic, everyone's been forced into remote work. If they can do that, they've been forced into remote work, whole new set of tools are going to come out. So there's all sorts of things around enterprise. 
but it's not just enterprise. I mean, if you think about some e-commerce numbers that I pulled for North America, admittedly, from 2010 to 2020, e-commerce as a percentage of all commerce in North America went from 6 to about 16%, one six. From January 2020 to July 2020, so six months, it went from 16 to about 27%. So we made more progress in six months than we did in the previous 10 years. And by the way, that's not going backwards. So if you just think about that and you think about every physical business has to instantly become, how can I do curbside pickup? How can I digitally enable my website? If you look at organizations like Shopify, why are their numbers going through the roof? Because everyone's got to figure out e-commerce all of a sudden. And I think you're just going to see more and more of this dislocation and disruption throughout industry. Education is another great one, right? I have two kids who are in elementary school and the way that my daughter started kindergarten two days ago, very different than how my son started kindergarten two years ago. And so now I'm not expecting that all kindergartners are going to become Zoom machines, but like she started with a Chromebook. I mean, that's crazy and provided by the school system. And now they've got the whole thing orchestrated. They're using applications like Clever, which is a great software product that basically didn't even exist five years ago. So you're going to see these kinds of transformations that are going to come throughout all these industries. I think there's going to be a lot in travel, obviously, a lot in hospitality. You already see how Airbnb is a good example. Their business has gone from long-term rentals when you want to go on vacation to short-term rentals that are close to you because that's the only place you can go. And they just filed their S1 again. So clearly, like this is happening very quickly. It's going to happen across every industry. I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see. Okay. So you came out to Australia when Octa's opened its offices here. Um, you are familiar with, uh, with the ecosystem to an extent. I wanted to ask you, for Australian companies, Australian founders looking to take product to the world, what advice would you have to give them? And tyrannies of distance aside, I guess if we're all managing companies by Zoom these days, does that make life easier or harder? That's a good point, James, in particular for fundraising. It's not like you're, li- you're literally going to Silicon Valley. You're on a Zoom, just like the guy who's in Palo Alto, California, or the gal. So you can build your business from anywhere and you can have the same interaction. So I think that's a very good point. On the first point, about specifically advice to Australian entrepreneurs. You know, there is a very good and growing entrepreneurial ecosystem in Australia. Like I mentioned, Melanie Perkins from Canva, I think is a great example. The Atlassian team has been a great example of that. I know that there's a great Australian firm, Blackbird Ventures, recently raised a new $500 million fund to invest in local tech startups. So clearly you have that industry and you have that going. It's also a technology forward and a modern society. So you're all technologically native. There's a very good business. If you look at the size of the country, you look at the size of the economy. When you're starting a company, there's a very good book that Peter Thiel wrote that I recommend to folks, regardless of what you think about his, his political views. He wrote a very good book for startups called uh, Zero to One. And in that book, which I think came out in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, he talks about becoming a monopolist in a small market with a lot of adjacencies. And that's kind of what we did at Okta. Now, I'd love to tell you we followed his book, except we obviously started the company eight years before he published it. But that is true geographically as well. So you don't have to be in the biggest market possible to start with. You have to find the right solution that is exactly what it says, a monopolist in a small market with a lot of adjacencies. And if you nail that and you get the customer adoption right and you get the product market fit correct and you understand the personas and you see how you can branch out, that is something you can absolutely do in Australia and then transit out to either Western Europe. I mean, they have a great venture capital business. United States, it's not just California. New York, Texas, I mean, they're really cropping up all over the place now. 
And as you said, as of this moment right now, you and I are face to face, but on Zoom, how many thousands and thousands of miles away? And so that almost levels the playing field because now everyone can be on Zoom. Yeah, look, we're pretty excited down here in Australia. Sydney is particularly strong in the in the startup space, but there are a lot of companies doing some doing some great stuff and a lot of optimism despite obviously a pandemic. I'm going to finish up shortly, and I wanted to ask you though. It's kind of a tricky one, but it goes to the the heart of identity in the online world. When we talk about geopolitics, there's been a fracturing. Clearly, there's been a, a trade war, US and China, and you know Australia hasn't been immune to some of the fallout from that. When we look at things like bans on Huawei and the use of Huawei equipment across Five Eyes type nations, how will the world work when the world is fractured from an electronic and internet point of view? First of all, I hope that does not happen, to be clear. I know that right now there is some uh, disconnect. I would like to think it's just a disconnect between a lot of these large nations on what's happening, but I think a fractured internet would be a step backwards uh, for all of us talk about things we need to do more of, that's collaboration, we need to operate securely, we need to operate successfully from anywhere in the world. That's not gonna happen with a fractured internet. So I think that that is very, very important, something we need to watch. I also think that there's a lot of conversations that are kind of being all mixed together. Here in these topics specifically, you talk about technology, you talk about Americans having concern about Chinese technology. We're conflating privacy and security. And those things are related, but they're also different, right? Privacy protects the kind of restriction of the data intake, but security, you actually need all that data to provide proper protection. So if you think about like how banks work as a good example, you have to give them some information so that they can do fraud protection. And so if you kind of extrapolate that out, there has to be good communication and there has to be good interchange and exchange of information, of data, and there has to be a level of trust and confidence that I agree with you is unfortunately not there. And, you know, it would not be hard to say is trending in the wrong direction. I think these are big problems. I think they are not good for technology. They're not good for society. They're not good for the communities in which we work and operate and live. And I think there are things that I hope we can get back on track in short order. Okay. And there's nothing uh, particularly certain about what the future holds. I'm going to finish with this, just an open-ended question. We're deep into a difficult trying year what's your outlook i mean just beyond the beyond the technology uh what's your outlook i mean i gotta have a positive outlook uh what do you want me to do yes it is certainly a trying year we've got the COVID 19 global pandemic happening we have a huge economic dislocation happening uh, around the world in in the united states it's been really really bad We've got, you know, racial inequality has become a major topic, which is way overdue, but also just adds to the uncertainty that we have going on in, in the environments. And now we have obviously, you know, as, as you and I were discussing just before we got on the podcast in California, now we have fires that are erupting. We have blackouts that are rolling through California. So yeah, I mean, it is hard to understand how it could get worse. So I have to be optimistic. Look, I think these are all major things. There, some of them are related. Some of them are not related. I think that the human race is resilient. Um, I think if it's unfortunate that we're dealing with kind of 1918 plus 1932 plus 1964 plus, plus, plus all wrapped into one. And certainly, you know, we have a lot of younger employees at Okta and I have children that are age seven and younger. So kind of explaining to them what's happening in the world is very difficult. I don't understand all of it myself. 
but I have to be optimistic. I have to be positive. I think that's, first of all, probably the underlying nature of the entrepreneur. As my CFO and my general counsel like to remind me, their job is to say no, and my job is to say, that's incorrect. How are we going to get it done? So I guess I'm optimistic by nature. It can certainly be hard these days with everything that we have stacked up, but I think the future is bright. I think we will find a vaccine. I don't know if it's this week, this month, this quarter, but we will find a vaccine. Um, I think people need to stay safe. They need to stay healthy. People need to pay attention as much as possible to the best health advice that's out there because people are figuring it out as we go, but there are some very smart people in the world, so we should listen to them. And then finally, I'll start with one of the things I said earlier. We are coming up on a major election in the United States in November, and I encourage everyone who is listening to go and vote. Frederick Karras from Okta, thank you very much for joining us on the Commercial Disco. James, thanks a lot for having me. It's my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.